This month's Where Did the Road Go is brought to you by Super Inframan and Allison Cook, two really awesome people that help keep this show going, as do all of my patrons. If you want to become a patron, www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. Transmission start. Welcome to Where Did the Road Go? Join us as we wander off the path and explore lost history, consciousness, the paranormal, unexplained mysteries, alternative thought, and much more. We are present on the web at wheredidtheroadgo.com. Now here is your host, Soraya. Welcome to this edition of Where Did the Road Go? And uh, I think last week we said Nathan Isaac was going to be on the do part two this week, but uh, we had to postpone that to next week. Uh, and so uh, this week I have with me uh, a bunch of people I don't really know. Uh, Timothy Renner. Hello. Strange Familiars, I think. You're strangely familiar with that. <laughs> uh, Octavian Graves from Strange Dimensions. Exactly, yes. Hi. Hmm. Christopher Ernst. I'm not from anywhere. I'm just strange. What? <laughs> Fair. And uh, and uh, Taylor, I think he just goes by Taylor. <laughs> yep, that's like me. the guitar company? <laughs> yeah. Taylor Bell. A out over the O. Of the uh, Green Lion podcast. Yep, changing it to the Strange Lion podcast now. Are you? Re- <laughs> oh, okay. That makes sense, yeah. You should. You definitely should. And uh, <laughs> and Chris, your your company's going to have to get rid of the bright rectangle and right, change it to strange rectangle. rectangle. Yeah, <laughs> that's perfect. So tonight, um, I'm going to make good on the threat I made during the strange disappearances thing. Uh, and uh, I've pulled out the Reader's Digest Mysteries of the Unexplained book and figure we could talk about some of the weird stuff they have in here. This is just, they've just collected weird stories. There's no theories. There's no no debunking, no nothing. And it's just a collection of stuff from different books from around everywhere of all different subjects. So it has, uh, let's see, if I go back to the beginning. It was published in 1982, and... I can find the damn thing. Okay. So we got Beyond the Walls of Time, Prophecies, Anomalies, and Coincidences, Unearthly Fates, Spontaneous Human Combustion, Inexplicable Crimes and Assaults, and Appearances and Disappearances, Monsters and More with Monsters and Spectral Incursions, otherwise known as Ghosts, The Unquiet Sky, Strange Things from Above, Unidentified Flying Objects, and Atmospheric and Astronomical Oddities. In the Realm of Miracles, Cures and Immunities, and Signs and Wonders. Wow, that's a real smattering. Yeah. Yeah, and I loved this book as a kid, and I had pulled it out before. It's about over 300 pages long, and it's a big, big big-sized book. I pulled this out before I was doing Where Did the Road Go? And for a while, I was doing like this anomaly corner thing on The Last Eggs of the Lost, where I'd grab a couple of stories out of this every week and just read them. The problem is the people I was doing The Last Exit with didn't really have any commentary on anything. They were just like, oh, and then we'd play music, you know, so. <laughs> right. All right. So uh, I love this one. I know we've talked about it on the show before, but I want to get you guys' thoughts on it. The Devil's Hoof Marks. <laughs> 
were so called by the astounded villagers who saw them appear overnight in rural England in 1855. On the morning of February 8th, countless numbers of unidentifiable prints were discovered in the snow around 18 communities in the county of Devon. They were shaped like small horseshoes and ran in absolutely straight lines, one behind the other, as if whatever made them had only one leg or a particularly mincing gait. In a single night, the unknown beast had traveled about 100 miles, crossing a wide river, and had skulked around houses. In some places, it apparently walked right up walls and along rooftops, and here and there, the tracks gave the impression that the thing had actually passed through walls and roofs. For some time thereafter, people feared to go out after dark, and the superstitious believed that the tracks were made by Satan himself. Yeah, just all in a line, like a single line that's interesting and i know people have said oh it's probably a hoax but if you did a hoax of a hundred miles of perfectly straight hoof marks without leaving any Mm -hmm. other evidence that's a pretty damn impressive hoax it's very dedicated and lining it up through walls and across rivers and yes that's wild with no one seeing you i kind of spaced out there did um that's the one where it was on rooftops too right yes yeah yeah up and down. Well, I mean, this up, is, right up walls, along rooftops. This is uh, where the footprints end. Uh, <laughs> domain, right there. This is footprints in a line. I mean, you know, Bigfoot has yes, a strange gait. He walks in a perfectly straight line, one foot in front of the other. Always? Uh, not probably not always, but that's you know that's what people say. Huh? It's right. it's it's the the strange Bigfoot gait. Uh, lots lots of trackways have that one foot in front of the other. Or kind of um, reminiscent of your like single single sided foot, like your right feet only, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get that too, absolutely. And uh, more weird things on roofs. I mean, I, this is one of the most fascinating things about well, Bigfoot and everything else. All these other you know creatures, these folkloric creatures, they, they make specific mention of them climbing on roofs. Like, what the heck's going on with that? And here, this thing has uh, walked across people's roofs. So. There we go. It is interesting to, to to note too that if it looked like it was a horseshoe or some sort of cloven hoof, I mean that in and of itself, and of course the fact that they attribute that to the idea of the devil or Satan. Yeah. But really, they're attributing it to the form of the fawn or the satyr. Um, uh, but the fact that the footprints manifested as that, you know, as this sort of, uh, I guess, the hoof print. Um, that I find to be, to be interesting, um, particularly because of how strong that belief was at the time, I think in that manifestation of the devil. And that image is still around today. I mean, we, you know, the Maryland goat man and the, there's a couple different places with goat man legends that are of that just in modern context. True. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I would again, defer to you or Tim for that and where the line is drawn between goat, goat people and, uh, Bigfoot and satyrs, fawns. And I, it's a very blurry line, I'd say. I'm sure, yeah. Wasn't there another case like this somewhere? Most likely. I mean... I feel, I feel like someone discovered there was another not as impressive case of the like hoof prints going in a straight line somewhere, but I don't remember where. I know there's... I think it's in, in Josh's chapter on footprints and where the footprints end. There was a, a hooved Bigfoot thing. Uh, I want to say... Like up in Canada, maybe, maybe mm. in Newfoundland, somewhere like that. I, I'm drawing a blank. Don't hold me to the to the uh, exact details. 
but I'm pretty sure there was an instance where someone like had either saw Bigfoot or had all this Bigfoot activity and went out the next day and saw hoof marks instead of footprints. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. And did it say in the beginning of it, did it say that it was, um, like a horse hoof or like a horse shoe? Uh, shaped like small horseshoes. Okay. Cause yeah, cause that could be a pretty distinct print. You know, especially with the like yeah. the distinctive horseshoe shape, but that's interesting. Well, I guess it, yeah, I don't know. I'm just thinking of the different connections with horses um, and connections with like braiding horses' hair and stuff like that. But oh, yeah. that's all pretty pretty separate from you know uh, a one-legged or, or a single-tracked thing going through walls and up and down, you know, onto ceilings and roofs and across rivers. That's and no, no one saw or heard anything. They just found it the next day. Yeah, yeah, and, that's that's very strange. And again, if it was like through like two blocks of a town or something, that's weird. But when it's a hundred miles, that's a that's a really long distance for this thing yeah. to continue. You said this is in rural England. Yeah. Okay, in like Devon or something like that. Uh, yeah, Devon in 1855. It's okay. a tiny person on a tiny horse on a tiny quest. <laughs> it, it, it was it was a horse like a pogo stick. <laughs> yep. So so a goat should have a cloven hoof. It should right. be different than a than a small horseshoe. Yeah. Yes, hmm. that is very true. Yeah, which would go a lot more in in line with the uh, the fawn or the devil or whatever that kind of cloven hoof. Yeah. These people didn't know their hoofs very well if they thought it was the devil. Or the person. Then again, everything was the devil at that. Or exactly. Is it the Welsh legend about the the horse skull that comes to your house on Christmas and you're like Mm -hmm. sings to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't ask me to pronounce it, but yes. (laughs) Yeah, I got to say though, I don't know which is stranger. Whether it was actually the devil, or you know, a a pan like satyr, or if it was a horse with a horseshoe. You know, like a small horseshoe. I feel like that's even weirder it was it was horseman doing a sexy walk (laughs) the mincing gate yeah i like that so i i just looked it up and there's a wikipedia entry and it says after a heavy snowfall trails of hoof-like marks appeared overnight in the snow covering a total distance of some 40 to 100 miles the footprints were uh so-called because some religious leaders suggested the tracks were of satan and made comparisons to a cloven hoof um, many theories have been made to explain the incident and some aspects of its veracity have also been questioned, which I mean, makes sense. Um, as far as theories, uh, let's see here. Some investigators are skeptical that the tracks really extended for more than a few, more than a hundred miles as if that's a short distance, uh, arguing that no one would have been able to follow their entire course in a single day. Another reason for skepticism, as Joe Nickel indicates, is that the eyewitness descriptions of the footprints varied from person to person. Which also isn't all that surprising. Not at all, no. Uh, Mike Dash concluded that there was no one source for the hoof marks. Some of the tracks were probably hoaxes. Some were made by common quadrupeds, such as donkeys and ponies, and some by wood mice. He admitted, though, that these cannot explain all the reported marks, and the mystery remains. Uh, Author... Author Jeffrey Household suggested that an experimental balloon released by mistake from Devonport Dockyard have left the mysterious tracks by trailing two shackles on the end of its oh, mooring ropes. Come on, these, these, <laughs> these, go ahead. These Rube, Bol- these Rube Goldberg machines these people make to try to explain this stuff. Like, come on. 
Carter claimed that the incident had been hushed up because the balloon also wrecked a number of conservatories, greenhouses, and windows before finally descending to Earth in Honiton. And passing through walls on its way? While this could explain the shape of the prince, skeptics have questioned whether the balloon could have traveled such a random zigzag course without its trailing ropes and shackles becoming caught in a tree or similar obstruction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they just happen to bounce up and down, up right. and down, up and down. Yeah. Mike Dash suggested that at least some of the prints, including some of those found on rooftops, could have been made by hopping rodents, such as wood mice. The print left behind after a mouse leaps resembles that of a cloven animal due to the motions of its limbs when it jumps. Dash stated that the theory that the Devon prints were made by rodents was originally proposed as long ago as March 1855. Again, I mean, it's a pretty big difference between the size of a, a goat or a you know a small horse's hoof and like a mice or like m- mouse's foot. Also, that's a whole. Even if it was forty miles, that's an awful lot of mice hopping in a, in a straight line. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. yeah. It's really, even if it's two miles. Uh, and then the the next the next one is kangaroo. In the course of a few days, a report was circulated that a couple of kangaroos escaped from a private menagerie. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems, though, that nobody ascertained whether the kangaroos had escaped, nor how they would have crossed the ex- the excess estuary. Um, and Musgrave himself said that he invented the story to distract his parishioners' concerns about a visit from the devil. Yeah, it's, mm. it's the whole, uh, you know, I mean, in the historical Bigfoot books I do, you know, oh, it's an escaped gorilla. It's an escaped gorilla. You, you, we know how many gorillas were in the United States at any particular time, and, and there weren't enough to account for all these stories. Right. right. Yep. Uh, during July 1855, Richard Owen stated the theory that the footprints were from a badger, arguing that the animal was the only plantigrade quadruped we have on the island and it leaves a footprint larger than would be supposed from its size the number of footprints he suggested was indicative of the activity of several animals because it is improbable that one badger only should have been awake and hungry and added that the animal was a stealthy prowler and most active and enduring in search of food it was a badger one-legged relay (laughs) we've solved it Oh my God! You gotta love when the theories are more ridiculous than than even what the religious. I mean, Satan makes more sense than half of these theories. <laughs> <laughs> Where, where's um? Were all the footprints found in snow, or were they found in other like substrata? I think it was just snow, because okay. it was after a heavy snowfall. So yeah, that makes sense. So it was all outside. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So passing through the walls con- conceivably would be like from one side of a building to the other side of the building or something like that. Right, right. It says, uh, as far as evidence, there's little direct evidence. Of course, they couldn't take photos or anything. Uh, the only known documents were found after the publication during 1950 of an article in the Transactions of the Devonshire Association asking for further information about the event. This resulted in the discovery of a collection of papers belonging to Reverend T.H. Ellicombe, the vicar of Kleist St. George during the 1850s. These papers included letters addressed to the vicar from his friends, among them Reverend G.M. Musgrove, the vicar of Wythecombe, Raleigh, the draft of a letter to the Illustrated London News marked not for publication, and several apparent tracings of the footprints. During many years, the noted researcher Mike Dash collated and 
all of the available primary and secondary source material into a paper entitled The Devil's Hoof Marks, Source, source Material on the Great Devon Mystery of 1855, which was published in 14 studies during 1940, uh, 1994. I don't suppose we have any uh, uh, any kind of like wooden engravings of illustrations of these hoof prints, do we? Just, just the From sketchings. The okay. And Fair the sketchings enough. are actually in this Reader's Digest book. And they, they just look like horseshoes. Like horseshoes. Hmm. Okay. So like a U shape? Yeah. Okay. So I, I don't think any of those explanations work. And the fact yeah. that we've never seen anything else like it really, other than maybe one Bigfoot case, is kind of weird. I'm, I'm guessing that there's more than, than we're, we're aware of. Well, that, that's true. Yeah, good point. Um. All right, this story. An English adventurer named Andrew Battelle spent many years in Africa during the 16th century and upon returning home gave a detailed account of his experiences to his friend Samuel Purchase. The account appears in a famous compilation of travel writings cited uh, Purchase His Pilgrims, purchased and published in 1625. According to Battelle, who was amazed by all the baboons, monkeys, and apes in the jungle, two kind of monsters were also common, both of them very dangerous. The greatest of these two monsters called Pongo in their language, and the lesser is called Ngeko. The Pongo is in all proportion like a man, but that he is more like a giant in stature than a man, for he is very tall, hath a man's face, hollow-eyed, and long hair upon his brow. His face and ears are without hair and his hands also. His body is full of hair, but not very thick. It is of a dunnish color. He differeth not from a man, but in his legs, for they have no calf. He goeth always upon his legs, and carrieth his hands clasped on the nape of his neck, where he goeth upon the ground. They, they go many together and kill many people that trail in the woods. It's very old English here. Many times they fall upon the elephants, which come to feed where they be, and so uh, them with their clubbed, beat them with their clubbed fists and pieces of wood, and they will run roaring from them. Those pongos are never taken alive because they are so strong that 10 men cannot hold one of them. Well, I know what that sounds like. Yeah. Doesn't it? Octavian. <laughs> sounds like Octavian. <laughs> well, I was going to say that because of the language, it sounds very much like you're reading off the, the description of a spirit from an old grimoire because of the, the go with and the, and Oh yeah. Yeah. The language. That's immediately what I thought of. And even the, the physical description and yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I mean, I would say that if, you know, if they were looking at a Bigfoot type creature, they're proportionately reported to have, you know, shorter legs proportionately, you yeah. know, much bigger than us, but, but, uh, less, more, more of their height comes from their uh, torso. Really? Well, yeah. you said it, it, it has no calves. So would you yeah. Think well, yeah, that was, no, yeah, but I'm just shorter. saying if, if they saw a big tall thing, but with relatively short legs, maybe they would interpret that as, oh, right. The, okay. the, yep. Right. Yep. And I guess I remember hearing that some of the uh, like Bigfoot sightings there, like the lower halves, of their legs were were shorter. I, I could see interpreting that as having no calves or, or as mm-hmm. the calves being misshapen or something like that. Right. The hollow eye detail is interesting because I've heard of uh, a couple different Bigfoot reports where it looked where they witness said that it, it it looked like it didn't have eyes, like there was just nothing in its head, or they were so far back in its head that it looked very empty. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Hmm. And that comes from the 16th century. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I mean, 
if if I heard it right, they were correctly identifying different primates. Yes, baboons, yeah. monkeys, and apes. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe it could have been uh, the the, what, the mountain gorilla. Is that what was only proved recently? I mean, it's possible. I guess, yeah. But that doesn't look like a man necessarily. It looks like a gorilla. It's just bigger. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So this one, uh, a possibly amphibious worm-like animal of gigantic size, was seen in various parts of Brazil during the 1860s. Late in the decade, one Francisco de Amarla Varela saw something like a huge earthworm on the banks of the Rio de or Rio das Caveiras. I'm sure I'm massacring that. It was three feet thick and had a pig-like snout on what was presumably its head. When the witness called out to his neighbors, the creature disappeared into the ground, leaving in its wake furrows about three feet wide. Wow. Yeah. You don't, you don't hear too much about things like that. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, first thing that comes to my mind because of where it is, is like anaconda, maybe? You know? Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. Three feet thick, though. Yeah, I mean that would be massive, massive. Hmm. And the the pig the pig like snout is interesting. I could see like yeah. a snake's head being construed that way. Yeah. I mean, I guess if if it really terrified somebody, it could be an extra big anaconda that you know people just didn't were so terrified they were exaggerating its proportions. But if they said it looked like an earthworm, yeah, I mean, like the appearance of an earthworm is pretty different from. Like a snake that has scales and patterns and all that kind of stuff. And again, what year is this? Uh, this was in uh, the 1860s. Okay, so that's that. Yeah, that's late enough. Because if you go back to like the 1600s, a lot of times they'll use worm and snake interchangeably. You know. Okay. Well, not only but, that, but it seems like this was a flap of sightings that then just stopped. Mm-hmm. What was the description there at the end with it burrowing underground? It said it left furrows. Yeah. Was that be like like waves or ripples, or would that I, be like a hole? I think it meant uh, it left furrows. It disappeared into the ground, leaving in its wake deep furrows about three feet wide. So yeah, I think it's just pushing the ground up. Okay. Yeah, I picture that as like like ripples or yeah something. Okay. Interesting. Which a snake isn't necessarily going to do. I don't think. No, probably not. Unless it's just super muddy there and whatever. I mean, yeah, I'm not. I'm not trying to be Captain Debunker. I'm just no. Like, <laughs> no, but it's good to to look at it in many different ways as possible. Yeah, yeah, but no. I mean, I mean, by the eighteen, like you know, late eighteen hundreds, mid late eighteen hundreds. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking they're not using worm interchangeably with snake, and presumably. This person had been there. I'm sure they'd seen plenty of snakes. Yeah, that makes sense. So this this is a nice short one. I don't know what this sounds like though. An eight foot hairy upright monster wielding a club terrified a party of skaters near Chesterfield, Idaho, in 1902. Its tracks, four toed, were later measured as 22 inches long and seven inches wide. <laughs> like it had a, a large, like a large foot, right? Yeah, I don't know what yeah. you. Kind of what, a what state was that? That was uh, Idaho. Right, let me see if I have that in my collection here. Hold on. <laughs> you can go ahead. And the cl the club thing is funny, though. Yeah. What year was it? It was 1902. Hmm. I haven't heard a ton of stories like that, Bigfoot stories that it's are wielding a club. Of, the idea of Bigfoot having like ob like holding objects and using them. Yeah. Or even like wearing clothing and stuff like that, I guess. Uh, yeah. 
Mm. I'll have to find the source for that because I don't have it in my Iowa collection. So mm. it, it it comes from Alien Animals by Janet and Colin Board, B-O-R-D. Mm. Okay. Page 175. Yeah, like I said, there's some really interesting stuff in this book. It's not just, you know, all the stuff we've already heard. I have one from uh, July 4th. 1879, and this is in the wrong folder. That's not Iowa. That's California, I think. Is it Idaho or um, is it Idaho or um, Idaho? Idaho, yeah. Okay. Idaho. Oh, I thought you said Iowa. Hold on. No, Hold on. sorry. Let me, check, let me check my Idaho folder. Okay. <laughs> I'm picturing you with like full-on Manila folders. Is that? No, digital folders. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Okay. Yes, he's opened his file cabinet. But you never know. I can see it. I could Idaho's see it. Wild Man. This is from Wilkes Bar News, March 22nd, 1893. He wears burrs in his hair and eats grouse in a raw state. The Wild Man of Idaho again made his appearance. Many of the people living in Long Valley in Boise County, about 70 miles from Boise City, have reported having seen him in the timber of the surrounding mountains. Upon several occasions, a sheep herder, while tending his flock, saw a man wearing, uh, wandering along the ridges of the mountain who would disappear as soon as he saw that he was observed. The herder hid in a tree and was rewarded by sight of the uncanny being. He was a man about five and a half feet in height, with dark brown hair reaching almost to his knees, matted and interwoven with burrs. His beard was long and similarly adorned. He wore what were at one time a pair of gray duck overalls, but which were tattered and torn. In his hand, he carried a short, heavy stick. This sounds like a guy. As he was walking along, a grouse flew up, and quick as a flash, the wild man threw his stick, and with such unerring aim that the bird was killed, and it was then eaten raw. The herder hastened to his camp, saddled his horse, and pursued the wild man. When he had overtaken him, endeavored to secure him by means of a lariat, but failed. The strange being ran with the speed of a mountain goat over rocks, where no horse could follow. Since that time, more than a month ago, he has not been seen or heard from. Several insane persons have escaped from the asylum at Blackfoot, as well as from the penitentiary at Boise City. A number of them have never been heard from, and it is probable that the wild man is one of them. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a proper wild human. Yeah. There's a case out of Maryland from either the early, like the early 1900s or late 1800s about two guys who go down to southern Maryland and camp out on this island, and they see uh, a cougar. Uh, but before they can shoot it, like a wild man, like it's presumed to be a human. It may not have been, but like a, a guy covered in hair and in a loincloth comes out and just kills the uh, the cougar with its bare hands. I know Tim knows that story. I don't remember what year it was. Yeah, it's going to be in my next historical book where I cover the East Coast. Uh, but I, yeah, I forget which year it is. I mean, it's in my folder for sure. It's in my Maryland folder, but uh, it would take me a minute to find it. So uh, there's one here from R Roger Patterson. I don't think anyone knows about that one, right? <laughs> uh, so this one, which also comes from the uh, the same book that that other one did, the uh, Alien Animals. I'm kind of thinking maybe one of us needs to hunt this thing down. A new element had begun to filter into the worldwide composite portrait of large upright monsters by the 1970s, a possible connection between some unidentified bipeds and the UFO phenomena. A curious episode of the UFO kind occurred one night in August 1972 at Rochdale, Indiana, where a family named Rogers lived in a trailer home. Are you familiar with this one, Tim? I Not so far. I might recognize it as you go along. Uh, the sequence of events began when one of the Rogers saw a luminous object hovering over the, 
in the sky over the nearby cornfield. On several occasions hereafter, all the Rogers heard noises in the yard at night, and when one of the men went outside to investigate, he caught a glimpse of a large, heavily built creature parting the cornstalks. Once Mr. Rogers saw it... I'm sorry, Mrs. Rogers. That that sounds better. Mrs. Rogers saw it, it look, looking in through their trailer window and observed that it stood like a man but ran on all fours. The sightings were never very clear, for they were always took place at night, but the Rogers could tell that the creature was covered with black hair and it had an odor like dead animals or garbage. A unique feature of the beast is that it appeared to lack substance. What was weird is that we could never find tracks, even when it ran over mud. It would Mm -hmm. run and jump, but it was like somehow it wasn't touching anything. When it ran Mm -hmm. through the weeds, you couldn't hear anything. And sometimes when you looked at it, it looked at you like it looked like you could see right through it. Mm -hmm. Yet the monster was not altogether insubstantial. Among the others who saw it were several farmers who found dozens of mutilated, though uneaten, chickens after visits from the beast. The Burdines found dead chickens, trampled grass, and broken fence on their property. The pig's food bucket, the Burdines further noticed, had been emptied of tomatoes and cucumbers. One night, they saw the apparent culprit standing in the doorway of the chicken house. According to Junior Burdine, uh, the thing completely blocked out the lights inside the chicken house. The door is six foot by eight foot. Its shoulders came up to the top of the door, up to where the neck should have been, but this thing didn't have a neck. To me, it looked like an orangutan or a gorilla. It had long hair with kind of a brownish cast to it, sort of rust-looking color. I never saw its eyes or face. It was making a groaning racket. The Burdine men chased, chased and shot the creature when it ran, but though the range was short and they were certain they had hit it, it appeared to be unhurt. Yep. Check another box. Yeah. I don't, I, yeah, I mean, there's, there can't be any connection between Bigfoot and UFOs, right? I mean, that's, they're never seen together. Well, you know, if you, I think the problem is so many people look at it as unidentified ape, you know, sighted with extraterrestrials, and that doesn't make sense. And they're right, that right. doesn't make sense. But yeah. if we're looking at something else entirely, then it, it's not that weird. Yeah, or multiple things. I mean, this is almost like apparition-like in, in some ways. And if you see through and lacking substance, and if the light was just a, a symptom of something, you know, portal like in that area or a high amount of energy that these things then use to manifest, that's not so weird. Yeah. What year was this? Uh, this early was, 70s. Yeah. Okay. Uh, August 72. Okay. I apologize. Just for my own, like, box that's around you know when the occult revival was kind of really starting to pick up again true true and 73 was a huge year for ufos yeah it it reminds me of some of the stories where i mean a light is seen and then something kind of appears some sort of cryptid or other other thing i've heard you guys talk at some point about the idea that maybe the lights are um sort of a precursor or are causing people to see something else like maybe the lights the real thing was so i don't remember um did you say that this was all kind of in one instance or this was multiple sightings this was multiple sightings but the light was only seen once yes okay all right well i my my thought is that things like lights can also be caused by uh, you, you have like earthquake lights and earth lights and stuff like that that can be caused by electromagnetism within the earth yeah. Okay. So electromagnetism can affect us. 
So maybe whatever's creating the lights is also affecting us in a way that we can now perceive this phenomena that's normally invisible to us or is giving energy to phenomena that is normally invisible to us. Yep. Or <laughs> there's always the chance that it's a total coincidence, just two totally unrelated, it, strange phenomena. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, but, but it happens enough, though. How rare is it to see a UFO? <laughs> yeah. And how rare is it to see Bigfoot? Exactly. And what are the friggin' chances of those two things happening within a relatively short time in the same place? <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> when I was talking to, to Nathan Isaac last week, and I don't know if it was in the show or not, but he was saying he was talking to some Bigfoot hunters and they, they were saying, you know, he was asking them about other weird stuff and they were saying, no, 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 no we never see anything else weird, just Bigfoot. <laughs> and finally they acknowledged seeing like these weird lights and stuff and they said, but those were just hallucinations. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the eight foot ape is real, but the lights are completely fake. <laughs> exactly. It's like, well, when you have that model just set so firmly in your brain, you're, you're only going to see what, what, you know, strengthens yeah. it. Yeah. Whatever you're primed to, to see. It's so dishonest. <laughs> it really is. But not dishonest in the lying sort of way. It's dishonest to yourself. Yeah. yeah it's a lot of self-delusion. Uh, when you're ignoring data that doesn't fit with your beliefs, that's, that's you know, intellectually dishonest to yourself. Yeah. yeah, true. Well, um, and it's this dishonest scientifically too. If you're, oh if yeah. you think you're trying to prove this by the scientific method, which you know, good luck. But uh, yeah, an unusual Bigfoot episode occurred near Wantage in rural New Jersey in 1977. On May 12th, the Sites family discovered the, that several of their pet rabbits had been killed overnight, apparently squeezed to death by something that had, claws at that had clawed at boards and ripped away a wooden barn door to get at them. Oh. The, the probable culprit showed up again that night and stood as if showing off in the brightly lit yard. It was big and hairy, Miss, Mrs. Sites said later. It was brown. It looked like a human with a beard and mustache. It had mm. no neck. It looked like its head was just sitting on its shoulders, and it had big red glowing eyes. A, wow. a snarling dog leaped at it, and the creature swatted the dog aside with a careless gesture and, set, gesture, uh, gesture and sent it flying for 20 feet. On the following night, the creature reappeared under the yard lights. Mr. Sites and three companions waiting with loaded shotguns fired several times directly at it. The creature growled and made off through an orchid orchard um sites was sure he had hit it but no trace of blood was found in daylight mm. members of the society for the investigation of the unexplained i haven't heard of that one before made a thorough search of the area examining the rabbit corpses and the damaged barn they also heard a scream come from a nearby swamp which they were told was made by the creature but they did not see this thing itself nonetheless they were convinced of the sincerity of the sites family after the situ team left the creature was seen again several times, once by the site's children, who spotted it crawling in the grass with an arm outstretched as if it were hurt and appealing for help. Wow. Another one with uh, no neck. Yeah, and that's another one that comes from that uh, Alien Animals book. That's a, that's a creepy one. Yeah. Uh, I believe that, what's, it, the, what's that group of investigators? Oh. Um, SITU? Yeah. It is the... I'm, if it's the one I'm thinking of, it was it was Maryland based. Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained, is that what it was? I think, I think so. so. Something like hmm. that. I have if, now if, lost it. I need to look into that. 
if it's the one I'm thinking of, it was Maryland based and they were also involved in uh, the Ohio siege thing, which is uh, strange. Oh. I was going to ask you okay. about that episode. Was that 200? I think oh. um, very, very weird case. And uh, quite a bit of similarities with this one, actually. Uh, although the one in the Ohio Sea was even weirder. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a crazy one. The you know how many times do people shoot these things with no reaction? I mean, or or no blood or right. no apparent or it crawling. I mean, that's yeah. pretty like yeah. Society um, for the investigation of the unexplained is what it was. Yeah, I think that's the one that was involved. In the Ohio siege as well. And, and what but, was what was the one you were talking about that was even weirder? It's it's well, it's in Ohio. It's, if you listen to Strange Familiar's episode two hundred, we cover okay. it. Okay. It's a really really weird case. Um, I've been given a bunch of uh, extra information by some investigators who were around at the time. So I, I, at some point, I'll have to revisit that. Hmm. And I know where it was, so I'm going to to actually physically visit. Well. Oh, I'd like to tag along for that. Hmm. Let's see. Let's jump to something other than Bigfoot. Oh. <laughs> also, also, Bigfoot starts <laughs> killing rabbits. I'm I'm gonna have words with them. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <No kidding. laughs> I love my pet rabbit, man. We we are gonna have words, me and Bigfoot. Throwing down with the wizard. <laughs> <laughs> Wizards versus Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd watch that. <laughs> well, maybe that should be the next movie you make. Yeah, I was. My, my staff has destroyed Bigfoot. goblin raccoons. We'll see what it can do to Bigfoot. I want to make a movie where Bigfoot is the wizard. Oh my mm. god, <laughs> that'd be awesome. There's a series of books where uh, uh, the Sasquatch are uh, that. That's what they are. They are <clears throat> beyond being like another humanoid uh, sort of species in the pantheon of, of fae and stuff like that. They're uh, um, uh, sorcerers. I'd love to read that. It's in, the, it's in the, uh, the Jim Butcher books, uh, uh, the Harry Dresden wizard books, which are um, fairly popular urban fantasy series. It's, it's pretty far into the books. Okay. You, you can yeah. tap into some of that Merlin Wildman stuff. It's oh yeah, Bigfoot living in in a cave in the in the mountains and doing magic. I mean, that was one of the theories I I put forth about um, tree structures. Like they maybe they were three dimensional sigils. Yeah. Sure, absolutely yeah, interesting. Or altars to Bigfoot gods, fetishes. Hmm. Or you know they position them in different locations and a portal opens up somewhere else. Yeah. Well, the uh, and and then lately I've sort of gotten other ideas that they might be markers where they have encountered us. Because uh, perhaps oh. that, them encountering us is as important to them as us encountering them is to mm. us. And uh, I've, there's, in fact, Octavian and I were in a place where there's a really, really intense Bigfoot sighting. I think I know where it happened in this in this park. And uh, that was a day, a very strange day. Uh, but uh, I saw something in the distance maybe 100 yards away took a photo of it because uh i thought it was pareidolia and i locked my eyes on it and we started walking straight forward i said well we're gonna we're either gonna scare this thing away or we're gonna walk up on a stump or whatever it is but one way or another we're gonna figure out what it was right before this event happened an owl started singing of course (laughs) as we're walking there 
Octavian gets a text from his girlfriend, and you can tell what that text is, Octavian. She had made, so we have a, a cat. Uh, his name is Coven, but we call him Baby Cat because he's a year old, but he's still the same size as he was when we got him when he was a baby. Um, but she made a collage of his face, of multiple pictures of him next to multiple pictures of owls, and it's just really weird how similar he looks to an owl. Mm-hmm. So I... Uh showed that to tim while that te- well that text came in as we were walking right like yeah right then yeah <laughs> right after the owl thing yeah as we're headed towards whatever this was and octavian starts laughing he's like hey this is a synchronicity look at this it, you know it's my cat but it's also an owl yeah i looked away from that thing for maybe two maybe two seconds at the most a second probably more, and turned back and it was gone whatever it was oh, was man. gone yeah. But we walked to where it was, and where it was is, is about six different tree structures. Where wherever I saw was, you know, there's about six different tree structures there. And then it's right behind this. Um, the, the people who had this really intense encounter. It's on the BFRO site. They said they were sitting at a picnic table, and there's only a couple picnic tables in this whole park. And this was right behind one of the picnic tables. And I I half wonder if like wow, it's like right where they said they had this intense encounter. I sometimes go to that place every once in a while. And the last time I was there, I went to the area that he's, you know, we were when he saw that. And there is uh, a, a multiple, what we'd call like tree bends in mm-hmm. like where we were standing when Tim saw whatever he saw. Yeah. Yeah. And one of those appeared after I'd, I'd been in there at night with Chad and saw something with red eyes when we were getting stuff thrown at us and uh, went back the next day to see if I could see anything, and, and that bend was there, uh, right about where we saw whatever it was with red eyes. It's a really interesting place, and not in the wilderness, right up against a bunch of houses. Huh, interesting. Uh, Tim, while you were looking at this thing and walking towards it, did it seem to stay like completely still? Or Oh, absolutely still. Okay. Absolutely still. I was, I was convinced we were going to walk up on a, on a tree stump, and I was going to go, oh, look, Paradolia, you know? Yeah. Um, the photograph I took, my, my phone doesn't have a good zoom. So, you know, it's a complete blob squatch okay. what I captured, but there's something in it. There's something, you know, whatever I saw was in there. The sun was hitting it. It was about what four in the afternoon yeah, or so, but it, in the winter. So it was like, you know, sun was kind of getting low and whatever it, it was shining right on, whatever this was. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, the photo looks it, it looks like a Sasquatch kneeling down, but a blob squatch, you know, it's not. And when he looked back from my phone to where he originally saw it there was nothing we didn't it wasn't like we heard something run off it was no, there no. was no sound you yep. can what episode is that tim what is that 293 maybe it's something in there so yeah. that, that's fascinating and you know it's reminiscent of both the stories of you know people talking about how bigfoot can turn into trees and logs and, and bushes mm-hmm. and also the idea that while something is being observed it's sort of fixed to one set of rules and then when it's not being observed that frees it from that or allows it to do something else um that's interesting yeah it was this is a really interesting day and i don't show that photo because it's you know people are just gonna go ah blob squatch it was right. nothing so it's like whatever that's fair i i showed it to the strange familiars patrons but uh i don't you know i don't want people showing that photo around and saying that like Oh, Tim Renner said he photographed Bigfoot. That's <laughs> not what I'm saying at all. I photographed something. I photographed whatever I saw. I don't know what it was. All right. Well, we can do another Bigfoot story. <laughs> <laughs> one more. Come on. Um, just one more. 
I just, I just saw one I wanted to read. Now I lost it. Where'd it go? Um, oh, a Sasquatch encounter was reported by a hunter in October 1955 near a little town of Tate Juan Kosh in British Columbia, Canada. William Rowe, armed with his rifle, was climbing Micah Mountain one afternoon just for something to do when he saw what he took to be a grizzly bear on the far side of a small clearing. Moments later, as he watched, the animal stepped out into the open and Rowe realized it was not a bear. In a sworn affidavit, he later declared, This, to the best of my recollection, is what the creature looked like and how it acted as it came across the clearing directly toward me. My first impression was of a large man, about six feet tall, almost three feet wide, and probably weighing somewhere near 300 pounds. It was covered from head to foot with dark brown, silver-tipped hair, but as it came closer, I saw by its breasts that it was female, and yet... Its torso was not curved like a female's. Its broad frame was straight from shoulder to hip. Its arms were much thicker than a man's arms and longer, reaching almost to its knees. Its feet were broader proportionally than a man's and five inches wide at the front and tapering to much thinner heels. The creature came within 20 feet of Roe, who was crouched behind a bush, and squatted on its haunches. As it stripped and munched leaves from some bushes, Roe noted that the way its head peaked at the back the flat nose, protruding, uh, protruding chin, and beady eyes, and he was stuck by the short, thick, unhuman neck. All at once, the thing caught Rose's scent and looked directly at him through an opening in the brush. A look of comical amazement crossed its face as it rose to its full height and started to walk away. The thought came to me that if I shot it, I would possibly have a specimen of great interest to scientists all over the world. I have heard stories about the Sasquatch. Maybe this was a Sasquatch. I leveled my, my rifle. The creature was still walking rapidly away, again turning its head to look in my direction. I lowered the rifle. Although I called it a creature, it, I felt now that it was a human being, and I knew I would never forgive myself if I killed it. As it crossed into the brush at the far side of the clearing, it made a whinnying sound, half laugh and half language. Beyond a stand of long uh, lodgepole pines, it tipped its head back briefly and uttered the same cry. Then it disappeared into the woods. Sounds like Patty, right? Yeah, it totally yeah. does. I was thinking the exact same thing. What year was that? 1955. Okay. What year was the was Jerry Crew? Did he find the, you know, it was a fake. That's what, but like the story about how we got the name Bigfoot. What year was that? Jerry Crew? Yeah. Was literally the name I was looking at when you just asked. Fall of 1958. That's creepy. <laughs> Does everyone know that story? Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's some theories as to whether he hoaxed all of them or started hoaxing after they found real footprints. There's a there's, ladder. There's some questions around yeah. uh, around that. Didn't you guys? One of you guys talk about it in where the footprints end. Yeah, probably in the in the hoax section. Uh, section. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's where I'm familiar with it from. Yeah, you know, not uh, not saying there wasn't hoaxing going on. I'm, I'm sure there was, but uh, I, th I think there was more than just hoaxing. Yeah. Well, that's usually the case. I mean, not always, but I mean, there, there's. You know, someone has a weird encounter, and then they want they want to put more out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I believe there was like, yeah, I, I read so many Bigfoot reports; they all blend together after a while. But I believe there was something. It was around construction equipment, and there was something messing with like the big bulldozers and stuff, like real heavy stuff. Um, so, 
you know, beyond just, you know, the, somebody walking around with fake footprints or with something else going on. Well, I can read the story real quick. Um, during the fall of 1958, the wire services in northwestern California hummed with the story of Jerry Crew and the enormous human tracks he and his buddies had been seeing around their bulldozers for several, several weeks. The stir of excitement followed an attempt by Crew of Humboldt County to prove the existence and authenticity of the outsized tracks. An Associated Press story dispatched from Eureka on October 6th read... Jerry Crew, a hard-eyed cat skinner, okay, who bulldozes logging I roads. That's just great. Hard-eyed <laughs> cat skinner. <laughs> who bulldozes logging roads for a living. Came to town this weekend with a plaster cast of a footprint. The footprint looks human, but it's 16 inches long, 7 inches wide, and the great weight of the creature made made it sink. Nope. The, the great the great weight of the creature that made it sank the print two inches into the dirt. That was a really hard sentence to read. <laughs> Cruz says an ordinary foot will penetrate that dirt only about half an inch. I've seen hundreds of these footprints in the past few weeks, said Crew. He added that he made the cast of the print in the dirt he had bulldozed Friday in a logging operation in the forest above Wetchpeg, uh, 50 miles north and a bit east of here in Klamath River count, uh, country of northwestern California. Crew said he and the fellow workmen never have seen the creature, but have often had a sense of being watched as they worked the tall timber. Every morning we find footprints in the fresh earth we've moved the day before, Crew said. Crew said Robert uh, Titmus, a taxidermist from Reading, studied the tracks and said they were not made by any known animals. So I assume that story gets goes further from there, Tim? Yeah, and I might be confusing it with something else, too. Like I oh, said. Okay. Yeah, there's so many. So this one, uh, an Indian of the Nootka tribe on the west coast of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, claimed in 1928 to have kidnapped, been kidnapped by a band of big feet. Mm, I'm familiar with this one, yeah. Yeah, it uh, sounds familiar. Muchalat Hari, a trapper of powerful physique, well, I think I'm familiar with this one too, was an intrepid fellow who enjoyed spending long weeks alone in the woods with his canoe, his traps, and his camping gear. Heading to the uh, Kanumu River to spend the spend the autumn in his favorite hunting ground, he was afraid of nothing, although others in his tribe spoke warily of the giants in the nearby hills. But Harry was a changed man after he got scooped up from his camp one night in his underwear and blankets and carried two or three miles by a Bigfoot. At daybreak, after being put down, he saw that he was encircled by perhaps 20 of the hairy creatures, males and females, at a campsite littered with large bones. Frightened to begin with, he became terrified with the thought that his captors had planned to eat him. As, he, as they studied him, uh, one or another came forward and touched him, pulling lightly at what they apparently assumed to be his skin. To their amazement, they found this loose, for it was his undershirt. All the while, Harry sat motionless. By late afternoon, the big feet seemed to grow tired of Harry as a curiosity, and most of them departed on what he assumed to be a food-gathering expedition. Left almost unattended, Harry jumped to his feet and bolted. In panic, he plunged right past his camp and another dozen miles to the mouth of the Kanumu River, where he had hidden his canoe. He paddled 45 miles nonstop back to Nootka. He arrived there early for early... I'm sorry, he arrived there nearly frozen in his torn and soggy underwear, and utterly wild cries collapsed with exhaustion. Harry was eventually nursed back to health by the brothers of the Benedictine, uh, Benedictine mission in Nootka, but had never 
but he never again went trapping in the woods, never again so much stepped out of the village. Yeah, I've heard that one. Any thoughts on it? Well, it sounds similar to the, uh, what's the, Tim, you know the guy's name. There's a famous guy who supposedly was kidnapped by a Bigfoot and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in his sleeping bag. And, yeah. and that was like early in like the, the uh, maybe the 30s, I think. 20s. Yeah. I think, yeah. I'm drawing a blank, but I know exactly the case you're talking about. Yeah, so this is not like unheard of uh, behavior. And the Indians, first, like the Native Americans, have a long history of saying that these things come into their camp and, you know, take their women, take their children, you know. That's true. It's interesting that they would, you know, kidnap him, bring him to the camp, and then um, be intrigued by his clothes and then grow bored of him and leave. Yeah. yeah. Was it Albert Osman, the other one? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 He, uh, he supposedly escaped when he, when he gave the, the male snuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've heard that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just a family. But uh, no, his details are really interesting because this is like way back when. And he's talking about this guttural speech like they had a language, you know, pretty much describing the Sierra sounds. And uh, that was just a family unit. I think he said it was like a big male, a, a female, presumably the mother, and then two what he assumed to be teenagers. And he had a dog with him or am I remembering wrong? I don't think so, but... I'm not sure. Okay, I don't remember. I, but yeah, he, I, I remember that he story had though. some of his like canned food in his sleeping bag and coffee and stuff, and and they were really interested in his food. So uh, he finally like got him to take the snuff as food, basically. I think, and, and they started choking on it and kind of panicking, and that's when he just made a run for it. Hmm. But he was with them, if you know, if if you believe the story, he was with them for several days. Yeah, and it's it's such it's such a jump from seeing them briefly to to being kidnapped by them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any sort of similarities in terms of the areas or the type of people who have these experiences that are more like uh, th- that are that are more like being with some sort of you know primitive humanoid? Uh, versus people who are, you know, I'm thinking of an example. I mean, you know the story, I'm sure, because it's in your book. But uh, what's the one with uh, the kid who ended up with the uh, the Bigfoot and he was taken to like a cave where there was like a lake and there was a, a some sort of uh, um, sort of fairy looking woman there. Yeah. Am I conflating or am I thinking of a specific story? No, that's that's a that's a story from um, the 1800s in yeah. I think Washington State. Right, right. So I I didn't know like uh, for those of you that have more expertise in the Bigfoot world, is there any you know these two different types of experiences that people have are are there any similarities between you know these two different sort of buckets. I mean, in what sense do you mean similarity? Uh, meaning like, you know, uh, is it something that, you know, more people more in a more contemporary, you know, in the past uh, hundred years have been having these sort of primitive humanoid experiences versus more uh, mystical experiences? Or, you know, is it happening more in, say, the Pacific Northwest? Or I'm just curious because it's. I find it interesting that people are having both of these, you know, um, yeah, experiences. I mean, so the one yeah. you bring up about from in Washington state, that was, right. you know, I, I brought that to Josh's attention way before we ever even, uh, wrote where the footprint said, in fact, right. it's in my West coast Wildman book. And he does commentary on it. Cause it was like, I was like, Josh, this is, this is a fairyland thing there. I mean, this guy got taken to fairyland Yeah, and essentially that's what it is. And 
the Ostman one too is kind of like when you talk about like food and they're very interested in, in, in the human food and stuff mm-hmm. and the strange language. And he's in a cave that, you know, he could never find again. It's kind of like, well, you know, this, it's not dissimilar from, from being taken away to, to ferry. True. Um, yeah. This other one with this Indian, I mean, like you could certainly overlay the, the, uh, the fairyland experience on that as well. Yeah. Just, this, you know, surrounded by a bunch of, uh, bizarre creatures. And, right. The one thing that I've noticed, um, it doesn't go exactly what you asked, but the thing that I've noticed is people who have nothing to do with Bigfoot, it's not in their wheelhouse, it's not something that they think about, usually they're the ones for some reason who get these very up-close, intimate encounters where people who go out looking for it, like me or Tim or any of these researchers, they'll go spend their whole lives in the woods and never see one. Right. And it's interesting who gets the the good look and who doesn't. Well, maybe that's the answer to my question. <laughs> well, also, I mean, with anything paranormal, I mean, this stuff seems to happen for a reason. Right. So maybe those people needed that experience, whereas you guys don't right now. Sure, sure. Right. Or there's, you know, if whatever's behind these experiences is somehow, you know, uh, an intelligent force that's aware of things like your interest and attentions, that it might be... Um, you know, coding itself in one way or another, giving you different experiences based on what it wants you to believe. Yes, absolutely. Because I, I noticed I'm, all I've ever had, period, is auditory stuff. I mean, my the one time that I feel I was like truly in the presence of of something, there it, it was in the same area that me and Tim had our weird day, and I can't really explain to you enough how minimal this area is as far as like wilderness like it's really not like you can see from the path to the end like looking left or right you can see houses so we're not talking about some uh massive area of woods it butts up against a a good bit of woods like if you if you follow north out of that park it's there's a good bit of woods there but not we're not thousands of acres you know right like on the path that i was on when i had my little encounter um, which is the reason why Tim and I were there was so I could show him where I had my um, thing. And all it was was three sounds. It was a thought in my head, which was my own, but it was just a very specific, weird thought. Uh, something whistling, then three tree knocks, and then a bunch of uh, crows flying out of a tree in a very specific succession mm-hmm. and then when i was walking back to my car i heard something grunt and the biggest thing in that woods is a deer maybe mm-hmm. but it's only ever been auditory now i even when i was with tim i didn't see anything i saw maybe a, a slight movement of something but sure. i never see anything i only ever hear stuff hmm. i've seen stuff there multiple times <laughs> just nothing def- definitive like that whatever that was that big thing that glided through the woods when I was there with you. Uh, I saw the, yeah. the eye shine with, with Chad and, you know, big red eyes. There's not, not many things have red eye shine. Right. Um, bears can, but uh, I just wasn't, this didn't seem to be acting like a bear. And plus, you know, we were getting stones thrown at us at the same time. So, yeah, I mean, I seem to get to see things, but, Nothing ever definite, you know, flashes of movement and, and, uh, you know, eyes, glowing eyes or something, but, uh, you know, 
Yeah, I'd love definitely like like to see something, but just hasn't really happened yet. It's not what I've been given. So on a dark night in May 1976, six Communist Party officials were being transported through southern Hubei province in central China when the driver of their Jeep suddenly saw a large hairy animal on the road ahead. The driver blew the horn and the creature started to clamber up a steep slope, but skidded back down the road. It crouched there on all fours, staring into the headlights with the look of a wild man. The driver stopped, but kept honking, and his passengers got out to surround the creature at a safe distance. One tossed a stone at it. The creature rose to its hind legs, lumbered off into the gully, and then scrambled up a slope into the woods. The men agreed afterwards that the creature had fine, soft hair like a camel's, with dark red, with a dark red streak down its back, and the fa- his face was the color of flax. The legs were long and thick, the thighs heavy, and the soles of the feet were so soft that the animal made no sound while walking. The face huh. was long, broad across the brow, and narrow at the chin, and had a wide mouth. Although the creature had vanished long before the investigators arrived to study it, an anthropologist with the Peking Museum of Natural History, a Mr. Zhao Guaxing, suggested that it might have well have been a distant relative of the abominable snowman or Bigfoot. Interesting. <laughs> well, Interesting. You said yeah. China? China, yeah. So would that be the Yaren? Is that what they, that, or am I thinking of what they call it in Russia? I don't um, know. Yeah, I, I, think Yaren, I think Yaren is China, yeah. Okay. And you said, uh, like, short hair like a camel and a red streak down its back? Yeah. And its huh. face was the color of flax. What is that? What is flax? Yeah, I was wondering about that. Like flax seed? I don't know. I, I, when I looked it up, it was a, it's a flower and it's blue. Okay. So when you say flax, for some reason, I think yellow. Yeah, yeah flax. Yeah, I think it's like flax and hair in okay. the same, that okay. same usage. So it's like, mm-hmm. like, oh, like a blonde almost, it looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that, that actually came out, that was published in the New York Times. Wow. So was this one. Uh, they were both published January 5th, 1980. New York Times must have done something on on the Yeti. Uh, the mountainous region of, oof, man, Shenangwe, near the intersections of Hubei, which is the same place as the other one, Shaxi mm-hmm. and Suakan, provincial borders, I'm sure I massacred those, uh, was so often the scene of hairy creature sightings during 1976 that the Chinese Academy of Scientists or sciences in Peking decided to organize a search in March of 1977. It sent out a 110 member expedition consisting of biologists, zoologists, photographers, and soldiers equipped with rifles, tranquilizer guns, tape recorders, cameras, and dogs. Mr. Zhao Guaxing, who's the same guy from the other article of Peking museum of natural history was put in charge of a scientific research for the expedition. As reported by the New York Times, the search party persisted for eight months, and although it failed to capture one of the ape-like creatures, the expedition did see one at close range and gathered enough other evidence to substantiate its existence. Many footprints, 12 to 16 inches long, were found. Feces, sometimes found besides the foot, uh, beside the footprints and presumed to be from the monster, was analyzed and found to be from neither a human nor a bear, according to Mr. Zhao. Hair samples believed to have come from the animal and found stuck to tree bark suggested that some it is some sort of higher primate, he said. From accumulated evidence, including purported witnesses, Mr. Zhao described the creature as about six foot six inches tall, covered with wavy red hair, with the hair in its head falling nearly to its waist. 
It walks upright, he said, and the footprints show it to have no arch, hence a clumsy gait. The three smallest of its five toes are not completely separated, he said, and because of this it may not have the ability to grasp things with its feet. No tail has been detected, but some witnesses said breasts were distinguishable. The creature is believed to be omnivorous, but is said to prefer walnuts and chestnuts, tender young leaves, roots, and insects. While no recording exists of its calls, those who have heard it say it emits one long and one short cry. Wild men all over the world. (laughs) But, But the thing is, I would believe you could have an undiscovered primate in some of these areas. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, in, in the fact that the scientists there were taking it seriously is, is kind of interesting. Well, that's what I found to be the most interesting. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to see, like, whatever, you know, documentation they had there of this. There is, I can't remember where I read it, but I believe Russia has um, basically Bigfoot on the endangered species list. And the article was basically trying to say that America is the only place where it is so vehemently denied whereas everywhere else in the world they don't really like deny it but they don't like come out right come right out and say that it's real it's just kind of like a very nebulous thing where here it you know in the west we're so adamantly against it being a real thing yeah who who wrote that article or like where was it from i'd have to look it up it was i I was at work one night years ago i just remember it for some reason Uh, there's also the red hair again which is interesting and this being sort of like red hair on the top of the head kind of reminded me of, of like the red haired giant sort of a thing i'm not sure mm, yeah i don't i don't know exactly i thought there was some connection there with bigfoots but um who knows? well the red-haired giants uh were in south- lovelock cave yeah. yeah yeah southwestern the u.s i think was the legends of those and the they're the ones that, that we found mummified i believe in the lovelock cave okay yeah, I was I was briefly having a Facebook discussion about about giants, um, because I, I posted a meme where you see like a small human, you know, coming up to these large humans, and someone uh, captioned it and said, "I'm begging you for one more time to acknowledge children exist." <laughs> <laughs> and now, mind you, these these beings that the small child presumably was coming up to was as tall as the trees. But that could have also been perspective or artist design or whatever. Um, right. It's certainly not proof of giants. However, there have been giant skeletons found all over the world. Um, the Smithsonian, Micah Hanks did a, a research thing on it, and he dug into you know the Smithsonian catalog, and they have yep. listed their giant skull, giant jawbone, etc. Mm-hmm. But they are so buried that no one's allowed to see them. Yeah. I think it's really important that he did that because there's so much like uh, uh, what would it be, you know, uh, uh, disinformation on both sides sort of oh, yeah. around that idea of the Smithsonian covering stuff up. Um, and I think it's really important, you know, that and what was the, the book? Uh, I'm completely blanking. I think we've talked about this many times on the show. Um, the Giants, Richard Dewhurst, is that what it oh, is? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't have him on. I, I I read the book and then he stopped doing interviews for it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there there is documented ev- a documented evidence that the Smithsonian took the stance that giants did not exist because they did not want to, uh, in any way, uh, promote the biblical narrative, which of course says giants exist. Mm-hmm. Sure. 
I had a guy on my show. Uh, he's in a black metal band, but he practices a form of paganism where he worships like the giants and trolls of Norse mythology. Mm. And so when I had him on my show. I read him uh, a, a, a Bigfoot account from Sweden, which is where he was from. And I was trying to see if he was catching my drift about Bigfoot being a giant. And it just went right over his head. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. Uh, there was, there was that uh, research that was done what, a couple of years ago. I'm trying to remember. Was it in India where they were looking for the Yeti or whatever? And they, they did find an unknown bear. Oh yeah. That was um, the DNA research by um, Dr. Brian Sykes from the, from Oxford. Yeah. So, I mean, there is stuff out there that we don't know about. And when we're looking at these uh, regions like the Himalayas or these large, even the Pacific Northwest, there could be undiscovered primates there that are large and, and you know, hide well. I mean, that's a lot of space out there. But, you know, so d- down, down. Huh? If, do you want my take on this? Smithsonian yes. Giants? Yeah. I say it doesn't matter that the evidence is gone. It doesn't matter what method by what method the evidence is gone it's disappeared evidence yeah and yeah i if we can't put our hands on it it's disappeared it's it's like it's like the original uh, patterson gimlin film oh it's out there somewhere is it i mean if it is you know no one can put their hands on it so if no one can put their hands on it we don't have it you know uh it's, it's missing evidence and that's my feeling about the the smithsonian thing and the giants secondarily to that there are notes of like the Susquehannock people being extremely tall when the Europeans came here. Mm-hmm. They were, they said the the males were between six and seven feet tall, which w- was a giant to the Europeans at the time. Yep. So, so when we're talking about yep. finding eight and nine foot skeletons, it's like okay, I mean, those that's really big. Those are you know certainly giants by by any measure, but probably not outside the realm of you know if, if Susquehannocks were seven feet tall. Sure. You know, you know, but it's not outside the realm of possibility to have an eight, even nine foot tall person. Well, what, what you see, and you see that like Easter Island, apparently they had like eight or nine foot tall people there, uh, along with the, the more traditional sized people. Really? But, uh, huh? I, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, the, the thing is though, so if you look at people who are giants today, um, if they're a giant like um, like some of the wrestlers, like Andre the Giant, you know, so someone you know everyone knows he was like seven one or seven three, something like that. Or what but, about the uh, the basketball player in China? Right, right. But a lot of these guys don't move very easily, even though they're very mm-hmm. strong. They 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 because they, they have some sort of you know uh, uh, abnormality, right? Yes, yeah. yeah, sure. And so when you read about the legends of these giants, they're not. These th- these giants were very very strong and agile from the legends I've heard anyway, which suggests that it wasn't that this is just how they were. They weren't. Uh, they didn't have anything. Uh, they weren't like humans who were just unusually big. Like this was how big they were. It suggests to me that it was an offshoot of humans that was naturally like adapted to being that size, right? Rather than having some kind of gigantism or something like that. Exactly. But Octavian, are you talking about Yao Ming? Yes. Okay. That guy's hands are enormous. Yeah. Um, who else was there? There was a wrestler that they simply called El G- uh, Gigante. Elegante. That's what it was. 
and I think he was seven six or seven somewhere in that range. And I think he was a basketball player initially, and then they brought him, but he couldn't do anything. <laughs> you know, he was just too big to really do anything athletic. But when you look at the legends from Native Americans, these giants are the ones moving these large stones and building these structures and things like that, you know? Well, I mean, you know, again, the dates would have to line up, and I'm certainly not uh, 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 based on this on any evidence, but they're, you know, if you look at, uh, I don't know, Denisovans or uh, uh, was it Homo Florensis or all these different um Essentially, you know, uh, different humanoids that are being discovered and we're realizing we, you know, we as, uh, you know, homo sapiens were living alongside with. Um, I think there's, you know, what is it? Is it the Denisovans that are, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, that are the rather small, like people say, hobbit, you know. I know no, that's a, a, no, the. the right? uh, or is I, that the Homo Florensis? That's, that's the, the Homo Florensis. The Florensis. Okay, yeah, right. So uh, basically just saying that there very well could have been, you know, other humans, humanoids, um, uh, modern Homo uh, that did have, you know, that were just larger um, but were, you know, functional and didn't have some sort of chromosomal uh, abnormality. Uh, that's something I always, you know, that always yeah. occurs to me when you're talking about this too. I mean – for what it's worth, when I was in college, I had a friend who was seven three and seemed to get around just fine. Sure, you know, hard to get in and out of a car, but yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, but it's it's the it's not that they that someone like that has trouble getting around, especially when they're younger. Um, but yeah. the stories from Native Americans make these beings seem like monsters, like they have amazing levels of strength and and yeah, stuff okay. like that. that which, makes sense. Which people, you know, yeah, Andre the Giant, you certainly don't want to really get hit by Andre the Giant because he had so much weight behind him and so much size behind him, but he's not going to grab a tree and rip it out of the ground. And he's also not necessarily, like you were saying earlier, agile or... Um, right. People always exaggerate stories about their enemies, though, right? That is also true. Yeah. yeah. Yep. yeah. It's much more impressive if you destroy the, the enemy who could tear trees out of the ground. Definitely. <laughs> And maybe the, the, the people who are exceptionally tall, tall in our culture are, you know, it's a leftover gene from mixing with people who were naturally taller. The Denisovans, I think, too, were that's the one they initially found a tooth from, and that's all they had. That's what it is. Yeah, it was right. a cave in Russia, I believe. And they yeah, slowly built it. But there's also, there's uh, oh, Andrew Collins and uh, Greg Littler. I just got a book talking about all this stuff. Is it the Salutrans or something like that? And they, I think, came from North America. It was their theory anyway, and that they were particularly tall. Mm. Hopefully, I will have both of them on to talk about that at some point. Um, okay, one one more here, and then we're out of time. According to John Eric Beckford, or Beckjord, John Eric Beckjord, founder and director of Project Bigfoot in Seattle, Washington. You familiar with that, Tim? No, not off the top of my head. Okay. Bigfoot Sasquatch sightings occur every month. On Jan on July 3rd, 1981, loggers in southwest Washington saw a 9 to 10 foot tall Sasquatch at a distance of 400 feet. On October 18th, a logger picking mushrooms in the same area heard growling and noticed the characteristic strong odor 
of the large hairy monster. Project Bigfoot collects not only eyewitness reports, but hair and blood samples as well. Specimens obtained at the scenes of the four following incidents have been carefully tested by scholarly skeptics. <laughs> In Rock State Park, Maryland, near Bel Air, Peter... Ooh, I know where that is. Me too. <laughs> Peter Ronick was driving a sports car late one night in 1975 when he hit what he thought to be a Bigfoot. Recovering yes, its I'm balance, the creature loomed up over the car, made grumbling sounds, and then loped off. Hair stuck in the de dented headlight was removed for analysis. On the Lumney Indian Reservation in Bellingham, Washington, a Sasquatch tried to force its way into a food storage room in the home of the, Jeff of the Jeffersons. Uh... Clearly, the TV show Jefferson's on the night of January 14th, 1976. The family woke to the sounds of breaking glass. Leaping up and grabbing a rifle, Mr. Jefferson found glass from the five foot high window in the storage room and shattered all over the floor and blood smeared on the shards. Uh, black hairs with white tips were found in the window among the glass fragments on the floor. John Beckyard found himself. Uh, himself came to collect the blood and hair samples and gather reports of the many Sasquatch sightings and attempted entries into homes on the reservation. Near Sacramento, California, May 1976, a group of teenagers saw a Sasquatch breaking off branches of an apricot tree and eating the fruit. The creature left 25-inch long tracks. The youngsters collected hair from a fence and turned it over to Beckyard. His name's B-E-C-K-J-O-R-D, so I'm not sure if that's supposed to be a Y for the J sound or... Probably. Um, in Lebanon, yeah. Oregon, uh, in 1977, a huge creature tore doors off a barn and ruined fences while uttering piercing screams. Hair samples were taken by Beckyard. The one blood sample secured in the course of the incidents from the broken glass in the Jefferson house was tested by uh, Vincent Sarek, the physical anthropologist and biochemist at the University of California at Berkeley. He found it to be the blood of a higher primate. The hairs associated with the blood sample as well as the other hair samples were analyzed by three experts. They concluded that it had not come from a human, wolf, bear, or comparable mammal, nor did the hair match any of the primate submitted for the study, although it was close to that of a gorilla. Beckyard says of the creatures, they are too large to be men, too much obviously they're there to be myth. They may be man-related hominid uh, primates. The Maryland one, that guy was in a sports car when yeah. he hit that thing. He was in a little car. Um, the cops reported it. The police report says it was a bear, I think. Um, the I believe that hair was sent in and came back um, unknown primate, I think. Was yeah. Hmm. So that's interesting and it doesn't it still doesn't mean it's necessarily physical because it's something physically you know physically no, it, manifests temporarily it's not necessarily going to fit into our normal uh stuff you know i'd be interested in in you know where where are all these hair samples now now that we have dna where, where mm, are they true i would bet some money not a lot of money but i'd bet some money that, that they cannot be found that they are gone yeah would they still be testable after some time you can talk, talk to a DNA expert. I don't know. I, I, think, um, it, I think it depends how they're stored. Okay. Of course, in that story, we had the Jeffersons, and the other one, we had Mr. Rogers. <laughs> so clearly, this is a night of old TV references. But uh, yeah, that was that was a lot of the stories in the Bigfoot section of this book. Not all of them, and some of them, obviously, like the Gim, you know, Patterson-Gimlin one, where, where 
all very well aware of. I really like the titles of the other uh, chapters in there. Yes. We'll have to return to this one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's well worth going through some of it. Some of the, the Skyfall stuff is great. The oh, sky, the yeah. sky, the Skyfall and the weird astronomical stuff is very interesting. Yeah, like fourteen Skyfall kind of stuff. Yeah, like like angel hair and stuff, and fishes and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. Angel hair in particular will interest me. I was gonna say I, I thought it was pasta. interesting the uh, the variety of different Bigfoot encounters that you uh, read from. Yeah, felt like they kind of spanned the gamut in terms of you know apparition, wild man, you know, hairy hominid. Uh, some kind of fairy creatures, all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what makes Bigfoot so interesting. It's because yep. it goes through every single one of these phenomena in, <laughs> in very specific ways. Yeah, it touches them all. It's cool. And it could be more than one thing. Like I said, I, I have no problem believing that there could be an undiscovered primate in the depths of the Himalayas or the Chinese mountains or even the Pacific Northwest. I mean, it's not out of the question because there's enough area for those things to hide there. However, on the you know road you guys or the trail you guys were walking in Pennsylvania, yeah, yeah, not a chance. Exactly. Right next to houses, yeah. <laughs> Although I, I was going to mention, you said it was fairly close to houses, but it was also near the border of like some woods. So it was in this in this sort of space between. Well, I mean, it was in the woods. It's just a, it was in the like woods. A, a park that kind of runs up against some houses. Okay. Gotcha. All right. So I would love to talk to the people that live in those houses someday and just say, like, what's going on around here? Right. Yeah, definitely. All right. We're out of time. So, uh, Tim, where can people find you? Strangefamiliars.com. All the contact information there goes to me. And all of my books are on Amazon, except my art book. You have to get that directly from me. But uh, you can look me up on Amazon, Timothy Renner. All right, and uh, Octavian? StrangeDominionsPodcast.com. Uh, again, I get all my all, – all the emails come straight to me. Um, also on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Um, yeah. Taylor? Uh, so I'm building a new website, and it should be out by the time this comes out. So you can uh, find me at agreenlion.com. And Chris? I can go to brightrectangle.com, and uh, you can see my movies on uh, – uh, Amazon Prime and uh, Troma, Troma now I think they're Ooh, streaming there too. Yeah. Nice. All right, thank you guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. I would like to take a moment here to thank all of my patrons. If it wasn't for you, this show would not exist as it does. And I want to give a special shout out to those of you pledging ten dollars or more: Leanne Cherry, Allison Cook, Super Inframan, Stephen St. George, CJ, Tim. Andrew Nichols, Matthew Sproul, Bobby Bear, Christine, a blue second-gen MR2 drifting around a Japanese mountain, Patricia Gaiaquinta, Alex Whitcomb, American Rambler, Andrew Maines, Barbara Fisher, Beverly Williamson, Big Boy Limina, Charles Davis, Charles in Florida, Land of the Crazy Incommunicable, Chris Ernst, Craig Cisternos, Craig Parmenter, Crystal Ann Compton, Diane B., Duffy Doubter, Edu Camahort, MTK, Eric Citron, Eric Todd, J. Otto Bullet, Joanna Rojas, John Bracken, Carla Mahoney, Kevin, Kevin Shrek, Cool Kitty, Ron Dupree, Chuck Shudders, Kristen L., Laser Printer Jam, Linz Jackson K., Luke Osborne, MJ Armstrong, Jim and Sophie, 
Mark Bowley, Mark Brady, Matt in Delaware, Patricia W., Paul Jeffries, Ray Benedetto, Riker and Stark, Roger Gonzalez, Sam Sharon, Stone Wilderness, Tactical Therapist, Taylor Bell, 36 Dingo, Thunderboy, Timothy Castaneda, Tyler Glimstead, Vincent Trewell, Walker, Will Gebhard, William Powell, Ren Collier, Stephen D., and Amber Hall. Thank you all so very much. There is a Patreon segment for the show where we cover some more of the stories out of that Mysteries of the Unexplained book. I really enjoyed doing this show. This one was a lot of fun. All right, and uh, we're going to take you out with another new song from Vrangvent. I am thrilled that they are, they are sharing these with me as they get them done. This is a song called What Happiness Feels Like. And uh, if you want to find more info on them, pretty much you can just Google them. They got a lot of stuff out there. V-R-A-N-G-V-E-N-D-T. And uh, if you like this, you'll probably like their other stuff. So with that, I will see you next week.
listening to Where Did the Road Go? This show is made possible in part from our Patreons, and we thank you and everyone listening for helping us continue this exploration of the strange. You can always find everything Where Did the Road Go related at www.wheredidtheroadgo.com. And thank you so much for your support. 